You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have a great guest. He's an author of several books near I.O. His first book, which was really popular in 2013, was called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And his new one just came out, and I'm making my way through, is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention, Choose Your Life. So, Nir, thanks for coming. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, what... what um. What started you on the path of authorship years ago? Well, I, I've uh, enjoyed writing. Uh, writing through thinking for me was always what attracted me to, to doing this. And so I was a journalism co-major in undergrad, and then I uh, decided to take a different path professionally. I started out in management consulting and uh, worked at Boston Consulting Group for several years and then started my own company in the solar energy business back in 2003. And then uh, I decided to go to business school when that company was acquired. And uh, from business school, I went on to start another company in the gaming and advertising space. And that's where I uh, became very interested in consumer psychology and behavioral design. When I saw all of these uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack kind of you know, show us what's possible when you can change consumer behavior. And so my idea with my first book, Hooked, was uh, how can we take those same lessons that we see are, are applied uh, by the gaming companies and um, social networks? What if we could use those same techniques and democratize those techniques for good so that we're not just building frivolous habits, but that we're building healthy mm. habits? And so that's why I, I wrote Hooks because I, I didn't find that book. And I, I was looking for where where is that book on how to build habit-forming products for good? And that's exactly what's happened since Hooks was published now uh, more than five years ago. It's become a, a book that helps people build habits through uh, fitness apps to get people hooked to the gym and uh, educational products to get kids hooked to learning and uh, uh, financial services products that help people get hooked to saving money. And so that was really the idea behind Hooked is how can we democratize these techniques for good. And then uh, shortly after that book was published, I uh, encountered a new problem, which was that many of the, the, the products that were the case studies in the book like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp, these companies, uh, many people found they were overusing them, and myself included. I found that I was distracted by many of them. And so uh, given that I was an industry insider who loves technology, I wanted to dive into how do we become indistractable. And it's a made-up word. <laughs> Becoming indistractable is all about doing what you say you're going to do, so living with personal integrity. And at first, I thought that the technology was the problem, so I wanted to kind of you know, uh, get people unhooked. But the reason I didn't call it that is that, uh, in fact, I realized it wasn't just about the technology, that, that distraction is a very old problem. 
Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago, complaining about how distracting the world was back then, and uh, he didn't have iPhones. Oh, wow. So clearly, it, it is not a new problem. And so really, the book is about the psychology of distraction and how, why, you know, why is it that even despite the fact that we know what to do, why don't we do what we say we're going to do? It's such an interesting question, right? There's no knowledge gap anymore. The answers are all online. Uh, you have to do a little digging, and yet we basically know what to do. You know, we know to to exercise, we know to eat right, we know to spend quality time with the people we love, we know to work hard and do what we say we're going to do, and yet we fall off track. We don't do what we say. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of why is that the case. Yeah, maybe the first thing to do is admit that, you know, we're all human. Like, for instance, I've studied marketing for many years, but yet a good sales pitch still pulls me in. I feel the pull of it. It doesn't matter (laughs) what I know. So maybe that's the first thing is is for people to acknowledge, like, we're all going to be influenced by this stuff, no matter if you know about it. And you're saying, here it goes. It's happening right now. I mean, I, yeah. is that a step that you would say would help? Sure. So I think awareness is certainly a very, very important step. Now, I, I think that there's been a um, narrative that's been perpetuated recently that there's you know, two, two camps of people. There's either the blamers or the shamers. The blamers say, it's my iPhone. It's Facebook. It's Slack. It, that's what's doing it to me. And then the, the, the shamers say, no, there's something broken with me. I'm somehow deficient. I must be a lazy person. I must have a short attention span, whatever the case might be. And, you know, a little asterisk here. Some people do have pathologies like an addiction disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder that makes this kind of stuff, you know, more than just I like something a lot. It makes it into a pathology. But to be realistic here, this is 1% to 5% of the population. And yet the number of people who think they're addicted think that they have some kind of disorder uh, when really it's, it's a fact of life. It's something that we can all learn how to shape our behavior. So the right answer isn't to blame the big, big bad tech companies for doing it to us. That makes no sense. That, that's not going to change. Uh, and it's also not appropriate to, to shame ourselves and to beat ourselves up. What we need to do is to learn that these are, are new mediums. These mediums are, are teenagers, right? Facebook and Google and you know, these, these companies are relatively new companies. And we haven't quite learned how to put them in their place. And so there's some dramatic changes going on. Uh, a lot of good is coming out of these products. But, of course, there's some unfortunate consequences uh, that we need to learn how to adapt to. And so that's what I want to facilitate. How do we get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us? Well, as the author of, of this book, do you think that there's a perception that you are indistractable? And you know, have you had to tell people, I'm just like you, and here's a story of what happened. Yeah, so I, I am definitely indistractable, but indistr- the beauty of making up a word, <laughs> this term is like, you know, I made up the word indistractable. Indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you're the kind of person who does what they, who strives to do what they say they're going to do. So it's never something you finish becoming, just like if you say, oh, I'm a creative person, that doesn't mean you ever finish becoming creative. You work at becoming creative, and you refine the, your, your craft through your your talent for creativity. And the same goes for becoming indistractable. And this is why I say it's the skill of the century, that if you can become indistractable, I mean, this is a superpower. There's a reason I that indistractable sounds like indestructible. I want it to sound like a superpower because it is such a huge competitive advantage over your competitors, even your, your colleagues, if you're trying to get ahead in your job. If you're the kind of person who follows through, who does what they say they're going to do, uh, you, you are a tremendous asset to your employer. You're also in better shape. You have better relationships. Uh, you're happier. You're more satisfied with your life because you're honest with yourself. And when I found in my own life that I wasn't honest with myself, you know, that I would, I would say I was going to work out, and I didn't. I'd say I was going to be healthy, and I, I wouldn't eat right. And, or I would say I was going to spend quality time with my daughter, and I would get distracted. I would spend time on my, on my phone. And, and so I really, you know, I was patient zero for this. I, I didn't write this book because I knew the answers. I wrote this book just like I did with Hooked 
because I was looking for the answers. And so that's why it took me five years to, to publish this book because there was so much folk psychology and, and even research, frankly, that, that is just you know, not helpful out there. And so I wanted to dispel a lot of these myths as well as provide a, a recipe for how we can become indestructible. How does uh, overwhelm or perceived overwhelm figure into being indistractable? So the feeling of, of being overwhelmed, and of course it means different things to, to different people, uh, but, but feeling overwhelmed is really a problem of prioritization. And I think that uh, a lot of us feel like there's so much to do, uh, and, and when, when we have a lot of input and a lot of priorities on our plate without knowing how those things will get done, it leads to the psychological phenomenon that, that we know actually can cause workplace depression and anxiety, there's actually two conditions, a confluence of two conditions uh, that, that create the kind of work environment that leads to depression and anxiety. Uh, if you ask me before I did this research, what kind of work environment causes a depression, I would tell you, you know, it's a sad job. It's uh, being uh, a butcher or, or, I don't know, putting, putting dogs to sleep at a veterinarian's office or some kind of sad job. It turns out that's not the case at all. It's not about what you do. It's about the environment you do it in. And it turns out when you have a, a work environment where you have two things at once. When you have high expectations coupled with low control, this is the research of Stansfield and Candy, they show that, that these two conditions and only those two conditions is what actually leads to workplace anxiety and depression disorder. And so the, the solution is more agency, right? That if you, it's not the, necessarily the, 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 you need to lower expectations, of course, that could be part of it as well. That's not a luxury a lot of people have necessarily, but of course they could enter into discussions with their boss, et cetera. But more so it's about it's about the need for control, the need for agency. And so what a lot of people do, they, they channel this uncomfortable sensation of a lack of control into grasping for control. What do people do when they don't feel in control? They send more emails that don't need to be sent. They call stupid meetings that don't need to be called for. And so they actually make the problem worse for everyone else. And it's all around this attempt for psychological agency and control. It's a very important human need. Uh, but this stems from, in my research, it stems from an unhealthy work environment. Uh, we tend to pin the blame on the technology. Okay, Slack is doing it to me. The iPhone is doing it to me. Email is doing it to me. And of course, it plays a proximal cause, but it's not the root cause of distraction, particularly in the workplace. What happens if you're in a workplace where your coworkers insist on you using tools that maybe you just, you can't handle? Maybe, uh, you know, email or Slack. You as a person, you say, I, if I use it, I just cannot get stuff done. And you're, but you're required to use it. What do you do then? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think that there, it's, it's not that I mind people working hard or using certain tools, uh, as long as you know what you're getting in for, right? If you, if you uh, have really bad allergies, maybe being a forest ranger is not the best profession for you. So you, you need to know what you're getting into. I think, so if, if you're going to be a Wall Street banker, if you're going to work at a startup, you need to know you're going to be working a lot of hours. And I don't have any problem with that. I, I don't agree with this, you know, French-style legislation that says 40 hours a week by law. No, I think if you want to work really hard and that's in accordance with your values and that's how you want to spend your time, terrific, do it. I think where I have a problem is when we have a bait and switch, that we go work for an employer and we think we're getting 40 hours a week. That's what's expected of us. But then in actuality, it's really 60 hours a week because we're expected to be working even outside of work because we're tethered to email, we're tethered to Slack channels. And that's not fair. Uh, and I think, you know, if you think about it, if you take a step back and you say, okay, is it the technology or something else? You know, let's take it back a generation. If, if your boss called you on the telephone, right, on the rotary phone <laughs> and called you at Friday night while you're ha uh, having dinner with your family and he calls you at 7 p.m. on a Friday, 
Uh, is it the telephone's fault or is it your crappy boss who hasn't learned that that's the time when you're supposed to, you know, enjoy your start enjoying your weekend? And so clearly it's the boss that's the problem. And so it's not about any one tool being the problem. I think that's the boogeyman. That's the proximal cause. But in my research, I show that there is no correlation between how much technology a company uses versus how distracted people feel at the company. So one tool that people constantly mentioned to me as I did my five reason research in terms of what distracted the most, one tool consistently came up again and again and again. Number one was email. Number two was Slack or some other kind of group chat. So Slack is the world's largest group chat um, uh, software. And this particular software came up quite a bit as the source of distraction in people's lives. So I decided to go pay Slack a visit. And I was amazed when I got to Slack to learn that on nights and weekends, if you use Slack, you are chastised. You are, you are reprimanded. That is not what they do there. Because you, you think about it, if tech is the source of the problem, then you know, if, if, if Slack is causing distraction, well, nobody uses Slack more than the employees of Slack. And so these employees should be the most distracted people on earth. But that's not what's happening because they have a company culture from the CEO on down that, that makes it a norm that you are not to be using these, these communication uh, technologies, Slack or anything else, on nights and weekends. It's part of the company culture. Now, how do they get to that place? There's a few things. There's three traits of a company that has a healthy company culture. Number one, they give employees psychological safety. And this has been well studied for, for many years now. That it's not that any one problem is insurmountable. It's that it's the real problem, the root cause, is when people can't talk about the problem. And so this is where you get, you know, an Enron. This is where you get a Boeing 730 or 787 MAX problem. You know, people knew at these companies that there was something going wrong, but they couldn't talk about the problem. These were the unmentionables. Nobody could talk about the problem, and so the problem continued to manifest. And so what happens at an unhealthy company culture is people can't talk about their problems, whether that problem is distraction or something else. Whereas at a company like Slack, and I profile in other companies as well in my book, uh, that they have these types of discussions. People can raise their hands and say, hey, you know, this isn't working out for me. Can we talk about how to fix the problem? And when you have that open dialogue uh, with psychological safety where people aren't afraid of getting fired for talking about these type of problems, guess what? People can solve the problem. It's actually not that hard. But the real problem is when people can't mm. talk about their problem. So number one is psychological safety. Number two is a forum to talk about these problems. And then number three is that management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. So company culture flows downhill. And so if your boss is always on, you have to be always on because that's how you get promoted. And so co company culture management uh, is really the gatekeeper when it comes to company culture. So one thing I was shocked to see when I went to visit Slack headquarters is a big sign painted on walls of this San Francisco startup inside company headquarters. It says, work hard and go home. They literally paint that on the wall, right? Cool. And so th this is part of the company culture. And, and Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, believes in this, this type of culture. And they exemplify it for themselves so that that gives everyone in the company permission to be indistractable. That's great. You know, it's funny. I, a memory came to mind. I used to work for uh, you know, a tech company a long time ago, like 25 years ago. And I remember, you know, I was in a low position, so I couldn't do anything about it. And I went into my boss's office and I tried to talk to him and someone would come in and be like, hey, hey boss, I just got to tell you about something. And I'd sit there sometimes for 15 minutes while they would talk. And then mm. we would get back to it and I'd, the boss would take a call and then I'd, someone else would come in. And I, I didn't want to go see him because I would sit there and yeah. what am I supposed to do? Interrupt him and say, hey, I'm here for my meeting. Get out. 
you know, but yeah. I had and no this power. this is before the iPhone, right? This is before email and iPhone and flash channels, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, way before. So, yep. so proving the point, you know, jerks are jerks. <laughs> well, well, well before the technology. Now, if you add, if you give someone like that who doesn't, uh, who, who doesn't exemplify these traits of a company with a healthy culture, if you if you imbue the technology, you're enabling them. Now it becomes even worse. Now you know. Now we're always potentially connected. But the real source is not the technology. It's of course how it's used and who it's used by. Well, I can sit there and put away my phone and talk to somebody. But what do you do when you're talking to someone and they keep getting distracted? They pick up their yeah, phone, they, they say, oh, hold on a second, I just, you know, what, what do you do with yeah, that? Yeah, such a good question. So uh, in, in so the first half of indistractable is about what you can do for yourself, how you can become indistractable. And of course, that has to be the first step. We don't want to be hypocrites here telling everyone to be indistractable, uh, you know, and saying everyone else, else is the problem without doing something about it ourselves, especially when it comes to our kids. You know, our kids are hypocrite detection devices. And so we, we have to set a good example. Mm-hmm. So first we have to become indistractable ourselves. But then, you know, I talk about these three circumstances, these three environments. How do you raise indistractable kids? How do you create an indistractable workplace? And how do you have indistractable relationships? And so to answer the, your, your question here, what happens when you're sitting across the table from someone and whether it's a dinner party or a lunch meeting and they decide it's a good time to take out their device and start, you know, fiddling around with it. So we don't want to say, put away your device, that's rude, even though I think that that clearly is what we want to say. And, and by the way, this is changing. And just as a, a footnote here, we've been here before. So when I grew up, I grew up in the 1980s, and I remember in my household, we had ashtrays all over my house. Now, my dad quit smoking 10 years prior. My mom uh, never smoked, and yet we had ashtrays in the house. Why? Because back in the 1980s, if someone came over to your house, they just expected to be able to light up in your living room. That's just what they did. And so, but today, of course, if someone came to my house and just lit up in my in my family room or something, there'd be no way, right? That would be impossible to conceive. Oh, yeah. How rude would that be to, to light up without asking for permission or at least going outside? And so how did this change? How did this norm change? Well, it's called a social antibody, that when civilizations learn that there's a behavior that is destructive, they adapt. Now you say, well, but weren't there all kinds of laws that made tobacco use illegal in some ways? Yes, that's true. But there was never a law passed that said people can smoke in their living rooms. And so how did that change? That changed because people got the message, that's not okay. That's rude to do that. And that's exactly what's happening today. So when I used to teach at Stanford, my first year there, half the class was on their phones during my lectures. Today, that never happened. Because students got the message, particularly you know younger uh, the younger generation that grew up with these devices, the tech natives, they have learned to adapt their behavior much quicker than the older generations that had to adapt to, with these technologies in later in life. So here's what you do: when you sit across the table from someone who is using their device as opposed to being fully present, you don't want to be rude. You don't want to say, "Hey, stop using your device. That's rude." But you want to send a subtle message that also uh, shows that you understand there might be an emergency going on, right? You don't know. There might be someone's, you know, house burning down, you know, who maybe their kid is sick. There's no, you have no idea what they are responding to on their device. So there's one question that you can turn to someone and ask, which I found to be incredibly effective. And that question is, when you see them on the device, the question you need to ask them is, is everything okay? And when you ask that simple, and ask it sincere, mm-hmm. sincerely, because you don't know, there might be something that's not okay. They, they have two options. Either they will say, oh, my gosh, you know what? I'm really sorry. There's this thing blowing up at work. Let me take care of this, in which case, no problem. Go excuse yourself from the table, just like, you know, we used to, people do when they smoke a cigarette. Go outside, take care of it. Leave the dinner party so you don't interrupt everyone else. 
Or nine times out of ten, they'll say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me put that away. Because they didn't even realize that they were being rude. That's a good idea. Oh, it's better than you put that damn thing away. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't say that to uh, your boss. You can't say that to a good friend. But you can certainly say, hey, is everything all right? I see you're on your phone. Mm, that's true. I remember yeah, – it's weird. I remember uh, – it's a while ago, and it still happens a lot. But I would see a couple eating dinner, and then after they finish the dinner, they both go on their phones. And it's so weird. They're sitting there mm. on their phones, not with each other. And I, I showed my wife, I'm like, that's crazy. That, you yeah. know, yeah. unfortunately now you'll see, and it happens in my family too. We, we got to stop them, but you know, everyone can be on a device and they're all hanging out there and no one's talking to each other. It's nuts. Right. And, no, and, and this is exactly what we need, we need to fight against. We have to show folks that, that this is not okay, right? There's a term for it now. It's called fubbing, phone snubbing. And so this is this is rude. This is not uh, yeah. acceptable behavior. And so part of it is is teaching folks uh, that this is not okay. But also it's about looking for deeper reasons. That as I, I write in Indistractable, the first step to becoming indistractable is to understand what are you trying to escape from. That distraction starts from one of two places: either an external trigger, meaning a ping, a ding, a ring, something that prompts you to distraction, or what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state we seek to escape. If you can't sit down to dinner with your kids without taking up your phone, I got news for you. It's not your phone that's doing it to you. There's something else, as it was in my life, I'll be the first to admit. I mean, I am patient zero here. When I was with my daughter, I oftentimes would take out my phone. And it wasn't until I understood why I was taking out my phone. It was workplace stress. It was boredom. You know, I'll be honest with you. There's only so much time that a grown man can take with a child playing, you know, the toddler playing Uno. <laughs> I needed a break. But instead of sending her the message that whatever's on my phone is more important than you are, I've learned ways to handle it in, in a healthier fashion. But that, that truth, I think we need to shake up folks, uh, you know, our loved ones. And maybe it's not you that says it to your loved ones, but maybe this is what my book can, can help uh, in terms of this problem is to understand that we do these things, we distract ourselves because we are looking to escape something we don't want to feel. When we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check YouTube or Reddit or stock prices, sports scores. All of these things we are doing for psychological escape. And once we face that fact, we'll, we can do something about it. Because well, again, it's not new, right? Like people used to read the newspaper when they didn't feel like talking to their, their relatives, right? They would t- turn on the TV, watching football on TV over Thanksgiving, is a great way to not have to, uh, you know, converse with people you're not comfortable around. And so let's be honest with ourselves. This is why we do this stuff. This is why we, you know, drink when we're not socially uh, comfortable being around others. Lots of ways to distract ourselves. Now we have this new medium with which it's very easy to distract ourselves and escape a situation we're not comfortable in. That's true. Yeah. So have you have you met any uh, super indistractables? You know, like the Cal Newports or the the heroes that uh, seem to be of iron will and you know, get get things done and hold themselves away. Have you met any of these people? Well, yeah. So I've, I've uh, you know, Cal was nice enough to to blurb the book, and he's he's read it and thankfully liked it. Uh, but it, you know, there is a group of people who actually did uh, use, who have used many of these techniques. And the techniques in the book, I didn't invent these techniques. I I reformulated them in a way that makes it very easy to just say, okay, here are the four steps, the four things you need to do to become indistractable. But much of the research is, you know, fifty, sixty year old research that's been uh, you know, well-studied, uh, you know, such thing as making an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way that psychologists, uh, a fancy name for planning what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And that happens to be a technique that, that many people know we should do, 
Uh, unfortunately, very few people do it, but it is absolutely critical, and it, it bothers me to no end when I hear people saying how distracting things are. And then when I ask them, hey, can I see your calendar? Can I see your schedule? What did you plan to do today exactly? They show me their calendar, and it's blank. So two-thirds of Americans don't keep a schedule. Well, guess what? If you don't keep a schedule, how do you know what distraction is? You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. If you've got white space on your calendar, you know what you're going to do with it, right? You're going to waste your time. Somebody's going to eat up that time. It's going to be your boss, your kids, Facebook, the news. Something's going to eat up your day unless you plan what you want to do with your time. And, and it's interesting. So you asked who, who masters this already. Across the board, without exception, every C-level executive that I, I talked to and asked them how they get so much done, they were already doing this. They, many of them carried clipboards with their daily schedule printed out on a sheet of paper. Some of them kept it on their phone. But many of them kept a time box calendar literally accounting for every second of their day. Not that they don't go off track. They often went off track. But the difference is now they know why they went off track. They can say, okay, when I meet with that person doing this assignment, it takes a little longer. Let me make sure I give a little bit more time for that next time. And so that process of iterating on your schedule, I mean, this is how you see these C-level executives that are in amazing physical shape, they have great relationships with their kids, and they manage to get so much done, that's how they get to the top, is because they are masters of their attention and of their time. Have you sat and observed any of these people for any length of time? And, and if so, did that show you anything that you didn't see just by talking to them? Well, it helped me understand which techniques uh, are, are more effective than others because, you know, academics will study a lot of these techniques uh, in the lab and in controlled conditions. And so that, that was where I started. But the hardest part about writing my book was not, uh, the reason it took me five years, it was not figuring out what to put in. It was what to not put in because there are so many, uh, there's so much folk psychology out there. There's so much, um, you know, the kind of, yeah, take a cold shower every morning or whatever, you know, fly-by-night type of technique is, is the technique du jour. And I didn't want any of that in my book. I wanted only peer-reviewed studies, not only that, that you know, show that these techniques are real, but also uh, that are actually effective, that I myself use on my, uh, to change my life and, uh, and that I could, I could say with confidence are very effective. Have you seen that people are better at following schedules and plans earlier in the day and do they wear out as the day goes on or? Are there factors that will still will confound your ability to focus, you know, even with the best of intentions? Sure. So the idea here is to not require willpower. Uh, we, we don't want to rely on willpower. Willpower is very fickle. And in the moment, I mean, there's a whole debate in the psychology and philosophy community whether uh, free will is, is real. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that debate. But regardless of whether free will or, exists or not, uh, we don't want to require willpower. Willpower in the moment, you've already lost, right? If the chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to your mouth, it's too late. If the cigarette is lit in your hand and you're about to take the puff, it's too late. If uh, the, you, you're sleeping next to your cell phone every night, they're going to get you. Of course they're going to get you. That's how these products are designed, is to hook you, of course. So as, 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 uh, as engaging as these things are, as potentially addictive to some people as they are, here's the thing. While we may or may not have free will, we do have free choice. And free choice is about setting up a system in advance to do what it is you want to do. So you have a choice right now. See, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again. It's probably the most important line in the book. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So in the moment, you might feel impulsive. It's too late in the moment. That's when you require willpower. I say don't rely on willpower. Plan ahead. And so that's why when we have these four techniques of mastering our internal triggers, meaning we have ways to cope with this psychological discomfort in a healthier manner, 
we make time for traction, the second technique, where we plan our day so we know what it is we want to do. And by the way, we can plan time to waste time, right? The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. If you want to take a walk, if you want to meditate, if you want to pray, if you want to stare at cracks in the ceiling, do it as long as that's what you plan to do with your time. Then the third step is to hack back these external triggers. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Really? We can complain that technology is distracting when we haven't taken 10 minutes to turn those goddamn notifications off <laughs> that are constantly distracting us? Mm. There's no reason we can't hack back. Not only hack back our devices, but also hack back our office environment. Right? The open floor plan office is a tremendous source of distraction. Well, there's good news. I give everyone who, who gets a copy of the book, inside the book, there's a screen sign, a piece of cardstock. You pull out, you fold in a third, it's bright red, you put it on your computer monitor, and it tells your colleagues, please don't interrupt right now, I'm indistractable, come back later. So you're telling your colleagues, leave me alone for a little bit, I need to concentrate. Right? So there's solutions for all this stuff. And then the last step is to prevent distraction with PAC, where we use what's called a pre-commitment device to make sure we don't get distracted and do something we didn't want to do. So it only takes these four basic steps to become indistractable. And essentially, this helps us not require willpower. It establishes a system so that we don't get distracted. So how do you feel like you've changed as you've done the research for and written the book? Do you feel like a different person now? Oh, my gosh. Huge, huge difference. Uh, I was, at one point in my life, clinically obese. Uh, and you know, my weight was always something I struggled with. I never exercised consistently in my life. <laughs> and then about uh, three and a half years ago, I started getting into uh, fitness by using many of these techniques. And so now today at age 41, I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, I spend more quality time with my daughter. Uh, I'm more productive now. This is my second book I published. Uh, I, 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 for the first time in my life, I consistently do what it is I say I'm going to do. That's great. I'm sure that has... I don't know, implications throughout your entire life and all your relationships, like you said, that's great. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, it's not, you're never done, right? I'm not, uh, and, and and you always still get distracted, right? You, I, probably every day, something gets in my way, whether it's an external trigger, an internal trigger, something gets in my way. The idea, though, is that you don't keep making the same mistakes day after day. It's that classic definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results. You know, so many of us, I, I used to, my to-do list, half my to-do list, was recycled from one day to the next, to the next, to the next, because I wasn't figuring out tactics to understand, wait a minute, why do I keep getting distracted? Why don't I do the things I say I'm going to do every day? And once I figured out these tactics and I could change these things in my life, I didn't have to keep suffering from the same dilemma every day. Do you, uh, I don't know, just what came to mind is uh, the fear of missing out. I don't even know on what but do you find that that's a, a common feeling for people? Sure. So uh, FOMO is, is certainly uh, an internal trigger. So whether it's uh, my colleagues are all going out to have a beer when I told my wife I'd take her out to dinner or, um, uh, you know, I, I should go to that meeting that I was invited to as opposed to working on that presentation, uh, whatever it might be, that, that fear of missing out is an internal trigger. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be beholden to it, right? It's, it's our choice what we do with it. So you can't necessarily choose how you feel. That's impulsiveness. But what you can do is to know how to respond to that feeling. And so we can take, we can take measures. We can have uh, tools in our toolkit to make sure that when we feel that particular internal trigger of this fear of missing out, if that's something we struggle with, we can make sure that we have tools ready to deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner as opposed to letting us, it get us distracted. So any, um, I don't know, any unexpected results from living the process of your book like you know you feel better now you're happier and you're getting more done which is great but 
are there any peculiarities or uh, strange things that are still out there that you've noticed now more than before? Yeah, I think I think that there's uh, something that I'm trying to fight against is this perception that we're powerless. Uh, I think a lot of folks out there want to believe this narrative that technology is melting our brains, that technology is hijacking us and telling us what to do. And it can certainly feel like that. But, you know, the, the fact is these are proximal causes. They're not the root cause. Uh, and, and it's not helping anyone to just blame the tools. They're not going anywhere. Products will not be made less engaging. Do, do we want to tell Netflix, hey, Netflix, stop making your show so interesting. I want to watch them all the time. It doesn't make any sense. These products are designed to be engaging. We want them to be engaging. That's the point of these products. It's not a problem. It's progress. Uh, so I think what I want to try and fight out there is this myth that there's nothing we can do. There is so much we can do. And in fact, when we propagate this idea that technology is addictive, that it's you know, addicting everyone. And, and, you know, to be totally honest, of course, some people do become pathologically addicted, just like some people become addicted to alcohol or, you know, all sorts of things. But that's the small, small, small minority of people who actually become addicted. For the vast majority of people, this, these aren't addictions. These are simply distractions. But distraction, as, as I talk about in the book, is something we can absolutely do something about to put it in its place. So what's the path forward from here for you? Where do you want to go and what do you want to work on now? It's a good question. I uh, right now I'm I'm trying to get the message out there. Uh, I'm uh, telling others about the gospel of becoming indistractable. I hope it's become a noun that people start saying I am indistractable, just like they would say I am a vegetarian or I am a devout Muslim or I am whatever identity or moniker they use for themselves. Uh, that would be success for me if if people you know stop responding to every text message and email within 30 seconds. And if they get complaints from their colleagues or friends, they say, hey, this isn't part of my identity. This is not what I do. I don't, I don't let pings and dings control my life. I choose my attention in my life. Uh, and so that's, that's my plan. Uh, that's my dream is that we can, this can be okay to say to folks uh, that we have an auto-reply message when we get a, a text uh, when, we're, when we have our focused work time, not all day. But during certain times of the day, when you're with your family, when you're having dinner, when you're uh, doing focused work, that it would be socially acceptable to disconnect so we can do our best work and live our best lives. Do you see a need for uh, creating workshops or courses for people that just feel like they can't tackle it alone? Sure. So, so company culture is a really big deal. And that's not something that you can change on your own because you're absolutely right. If, you know, I can, I can teach you to do everything in the book, but if you work in a work environment with that boss that expects you to be always on, uh, you need to either help change that culture or find a different employer, unfortunately. Uh, but the good news is that we can change these work environments. So uh, that's something I, I talk about in the book. I, I profile uh, the Boston Consulting Group. And the Boston Consulting Group had – I used to work there, actually. That was my first job out of college. I didn't intend to write about somewhere that I had worked, but it just so happened that way. But I can attest to you that I, as someone who was a former employee – it was a very, very difficult culture. I mean, a few people lasted more than two years there because very high employee churn uh, because it was a very difficult always-on culture. And this was back in the day with Blackberries. Um, but uh, that company has had a tremendous change in their company culture. And it all started from one case team. It was a group of eight people in one team. Uh, and they had this challenge. They worked with a professor at Harvard by the name of Leslie Perlow. And they had this challenge to see what would happen if everyone on the team had one night off per week. They called it predictable time off, PTO, predictable time off. And it turns out that when they had these three norms of psychological safety, a place to talk about their problems, and management exemplifying what it means to be indistractable, they could talk about the problem 
And that one case team changed the entire organization. And today, Boston Consulting Group is voted by employees as having a very high rating on Glassdoor. Uh, it's consistently ranked as one of America's best places to work. And so it, it's a great lesson to this, this uh, takeaway that it's not about the technology itself. It's about the, the opportunity to talk about problems in the corporate workplace without fear of retribution. That's the real problem causing so many folks to have struggle with distraction at work and from work. Hmm. Well, very good. So, uh, again, any future plans or are you just happy as a clam and, and relaxing for the time <laughs> being? What's next for you? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, in the, I do have workshops and uh, will continue to keep writing and, and teaching. That's, my, uh, that, that's what occupies most of my day. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to stick with this for a while until I see another problem that I want fixed and I can't find a solution for. You know, most of the time when I encounter a problem, there's, I find many, many books out there that, that do a great job of uh, giving solutions to that problem. And so it's only, you know, every five or so years that I'm able to, to really pinpoint, oh, this is something that hasn't been tackled. And so when the next problem comes along and I have appetite to tackle it, I'll, I'll keep you in the loop. I think we need you to write the book Incorruptible. You know, for all all politicians, that might be a really good one. You know, <laughs> all right. Challenge you with that. Uh, great, near. Well, it's uh, it's been great. Uh, can you just say the name of your books again? And I'm sure they're available on Amazon and Kindle and all over the place. But just restate the names and the premise of both, so listeners can get them. Sure. So my first book is called Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and so that's for folks who are designing the kind of products that need return engagement or need people to come back to use the product. Uh, and then my second book, which was just published, is Indistractable, I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable. And that's all about how do you control your attention and choose your life. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been a great call. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.